This episode of Mostly Books Meets is dedicated to all of the NHS key workers whose hard work and dedication have helped the people of the UK throughout the coronavirus pandemic. Thank you. To Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Sarah. This week in our season finale of Mostly Books Meets, I'm speaking to portrait artist Tom Croft. During his career, Tom has painted a whole range of clients, from the Manchester United football team to former Home Secretary Jackie Smith. Tom appeared on Sky Art's Portraits of the Year in 2018. He's a member of the Oxford Art Society and opens his studio to the public every year during Oxfordshire Art Week. Earlier this year, Tom started a global initiative which encouraged artists to draw portraits of NHS key workers. These portraits have recently been published into the book Portraits for NHS Heroes, which is a beautiful tribute to the amazing work done by the NHS over the course of the pandemic. Tom, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. I'm going to start off by going right back to your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a child? Right. I am the least travelled person you'll ever meet. I grew up in Summertown in Oxford, and I now live about a mile from Summertown in Oxford. So, um, yeah, I, I had, I would describe it as a very happy childhood. We were very lucky. We had a nice house. I have two lovely parents who are still hanging on in there and were very kind of supportive of whatever I've got a brother and a sister and they kind of supported us in any direction we wanted to go in in terms of you know I, I was kind of I suppose creative from an early age and they never tried to push me away from that so I would certainly summarize it as a very nice upbringing. Summertown really is a beautiful part of Oxford because we're just down the road we're in Abingdon so just literally yes. like 10 minutes drive away from you. So. I think you're in a shop that used to be a pram shop this is this is how local we can get with our chat here. <laughs> <laughs> I've had the shop for three and a half years. It's been here since 2006, but it's certainly had a number of previous iterations. So I'll have to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So were stories and books part of your childhood? Yeah, I was thinking about that. Absolutely. So I remember one of my first memories, I suppose, thinking about sort of books was my parents used to sit. We had a quite a long kind of landing in our house upstairs. And me, my brother and sister, our bedroom doors were kind of open onto the landing. And my parents, one of them would sit at the top of the stairs each night. And as we were going to sleep, they would read us a story. And I remember Watership Down. Uh, I remember Danny Champion of the World. Those kind of those the kind of era we're talking about in terms of books I was being read. And it was amazing to kind of fall asleep having a book read to you. Uh, obviously, it's lovely to fall asleep reading a book, but it was it was something you could let your imagination run riot. Uh, my dad would do voices for the different characters, which again I always loved. 
when I kind of moved on to things like Tintin, I remember him putting a Scottish accent for Captain Haddock and a kind of high-pitched voice for Tintin for some reason. So books were part of our life, I think. I was a massive Mr. Men fan back in the day. And I remember going to, there was an Oxford book fair at the Randolph Hotel, which is a big fancy hotel in Oxford. And I remember turning up there and I would have been however old, I don't know, five, six or something. And Mr. Bump, my absolute hero, was there. He was actually there in sort of physical form. And I, I think I probably might have cried a bit and then wanted to hug him. And as I was going up to hug him, this little nightmare of a boy walked up and started punching him. And I remember watching it and thinking, oh, my God, you know, you're, you're attacking Mr. Bump. And then I had this whole sort of, hang on, he's always getting injured. This is classic Bump. He's got the bandages on already. He'll be fine. So I had this whole fleshed out character of who he was. And, and you know, this wasn't suffering, so I shouldn't worry too much about it. But yeah, in terms of books, bringing characters into my mind and my world, it was strong from a young age, as I hope it is for most people. I love the idea of your parents sitting in a place where all of you could hear the book. That's yeah. such a lovely thought that you being read it at the same time. It's quite often for, I think, parents go sit in children's bedrooms and do it one at a time. But to actually have the three of you experiencing it together, I think just sounds really magical. Well, it really was. And actually, the funny thing, because my brother is five years older than me, my sister's three years older than me. So I was the youngest. So we used to get slightly kind of racier books because they'd have to go roughly in the middle, you know. So it, from my point of view, it was always, yeah, I, I loved the stories I was getting read. And my brother would always be complaining that they're a bit too babyish and we needed to do something a bit more X rated. But no, it was it was a really lovely memory, actually. That's brilliant. And do you remember the first book that you read? Well, beyond things like Mr. Bump, I remember Stig of the Dump I quite liked. I remember reading that. So I have sort of subsequently discovered I'm dyslexic and reading is, I say it's a challenge for me. Anything where I need to concentrate for long periods of time on words is a bit of a challenge because my brain pings off all the time on tangents. And so I was always really taken with, Tintin books because obviously it's very visual uh, and I marveled at the illustrations absolutely extraordinary yeah so sort of all of the Roald Dahl books they were big for me it's interesting so this is the 16th episode of this series and obviously our last of season one and the amount of times that Roald Dahl has come up as mm. that book you know the first book and mm. in, interestingly enough there was another guest that also talked about Mr Bump so you're in good company. oh really <laughs> you mentioned that you're dyslexic when did you realize that and what kind of impact did that have on you growing up well I've only really I mean I kind of self-diagnosed later in life and then did the online test I clearly am well what I didn't realize actually because I can if you force me to kind of read something aloud I can get through it but my brain is always as I say I'll get two or three words in and I'll, my brain will go oh that reminds me of that thing that happened once or it just it, I can't seem to sort of lock in so I was struggling at school generally and I remember being hugely embarrassed you know the way teachers say right we're, we're going to read this book aloud and they work their way around the class of one of you each reading a passage I was dreading it coming to my turn and it eventually did and I, I just thought I know I'm going to mess this up I know I'm going to say the words in the wrong order or I'm going to misread some words and I get ahead of myself, so my brain moves slightly quicker than I couldn't read quick enough. And I started to mess up. And the teacher was vile at the time. And, and he just sort of said, you know, God's sake, Croft, you know, get it right. Look at the bloody text, boy. And made me feel horrible and like a complete failure. 
And so I do have quite a bit of defiance in my personality, I think, naturally. And I was really cross with him. And so I just started almost exaggerating how badly I was reading it. And it made the whole class laugh. And I thought, well, that's quite fun. And so I just carried on. I started putting on stupid voices. And he was saying, don't ham it up, Croft. I was just like, well, what do you want me to do? So at that point, I had no idea. It was a time that I think dyslexia wasn't widely diagnosed. You were just a bit slow and a bit rubbish. It was that time, but it definitely had a huge impact on me enjoying books in the way I see lots of people ripping through a story and getting such a joy out of it. And I felt really kind of denied that, you know, so um, it, it is a shame. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. We have a whole shelf dedicated in our bookshop to books for dyslexic children and young adults yeah it's amazing there's a publisher called Barrington Stoke and that's what they specialize in they have a particular font where if the letters flip then um they don't look the same and the the papers are colored ever so slightly yellow and it all just helps they're incredible what they do but when I look at those books and I talk about them with parents of dyslexic children or the dyslexic children themselves I just think back to when I was growing up and it was exactly the same you know dyslexia some people kind of vaguely knew about it but it certainly wasn't as well understood as it is today and like you say I think there was a certain assumption that if kids struggle with reading it was just mm. that they weren't trying hard enough or yeah. that they just weren't very clever which clearly isn't the case at all yeah no absolutely oh well I'd be I, I genuinely would be very interested to come, <laughs> to come and try some of those books I tell you what I do find easier is reading something on a screen so if it's backlit I find I can concentrate for longer on that so I find I now consume my kind of news, so I'll read some papers. Yeah, reading for fun wasn't really a thing because of how challenging it was. That is, until I got to the age of about, what would I have been, 16, I was quite naughty. And because school was a bit of a, the sort of academic side was a bit of a challenge for me, I used to bunk off a lot and skip lessons and think, well, you know, I'm not getting anywhere here. I might as well go and do something useful. And my idea of useful was to go and sit in a local bar at the age of 16 And there was this very charismatic raconteur called Harry Sidebottom, who used to sit at the end of the bar. And he turns out he was a professor of classics at Corpus College in Oxford. And funnily enough, I'd sit there having sort of an orange juice because, you know, obviously I couldn't get served alcohol. But And they found me quite strange. And I'd sit in the corner and sort of listen to life and kind of watch life go on and hear adults have conversations about relationships breaking up and all that kind of stuff. And it was brilliant. And they were so sharing once they'd had a couple of drinks. So I used to hear extraordinary things. But anyway, I became mates with this guy, Harry. He then became mates with my brother. And he was lovely. He was always in there. And he's become a successful author. He was like a penguin author, Harry Sidebottom. He does books that are based on classical history. And I've never quite had the heart to tell him I haven't read any of them. But I think he's quite successful now. But he used to try and find ways of engaging me with books. So the reason I say all this is because He said, I think you're somebody, if you do struggle to concentrate on reading, you want a really beautifully crafted line or you want something that will have a lot of swearing in it, you know, when you're 16 and you think, you know, I just don't get, I'm not engaging with this. And he got me into things like Martin Amis. I remember him telling me, you know, there's, I think it was the Rachel Papers or Success has the F word 57 times in it on one page. And I thought that sounds brilliant. I better read that. So (laughs) I had pockets of appearing to be, into the kind of literary world. And I'd sit in a bar thumbing my way through Money by Martin Amos or something. It were probably dreadful books now when you look back on them. I suspect they don't stand the test of time, I don't know. But I couldn't do 
the sort of nonsense that my brother would read, like Sir Geoffrey Archer. I think there's a rhythm and a speed you need to be able to read at to get fast-moving crime stuff or fast-moving political drama. And I couldn't read quick enough to get it to sort of fly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think I found myself reading nicely crafted stuff more than kind of page turners I suppose I love the fact that there's a you can pinpoint it to an individual who inspired you and I also love the fact that you met him while sat in a bar at the age of 16 that is epic there is a lot more wrong we could go into on that which we won't right now (laughs) okay fast forward to the present day you're now a portrait painter and you live in, as you say, you work in Oxford. How did you get into that line of work? So I went to study in, I suppose the, the, the kind of fancy term is an atelier, but it was kind of like an art studio for about 15 students from all around the world. And so it was my art college, but it wasn't like an art college where you do a little bit of, you know, pottery, you do, you study certain artists. It was very technical, very driven towards learning how to basically paint something to look a bit like a photograph. So it wasn't hugely creative, weirdly. It was just, as I say, quite dry and technical. But you came out of these four years of college um, able to paint more or less anything and make it look like the thing. So I found myself getting into illustration. So I used to illustrate book covers. I did loads of Naff, Mills and Boone, you know, those kind of awful romantic Uh, stories. I did lots of those. I used to get my family members to pose for them, which um, amused me greatly. So like my brother was a vicar who was once having an affair with somebody. He was (laughs) kind of on the front of this book and he had no, and I'd never tell them what the stories were about. I'd just say, oh yeah, sure. It's about somebody good looking and successful. And they'd all say, oh brilliant. Okay. I see why you've chosen me, you know, and it would turn out to be some appalling storyline. So that was all good fun. So I did lots and lots of those and it was always painting people. So I did advertising work. I did all manner of things. Nicotine, the one pill treatment for giving up smoking. I remember doing a thrush campaign. Got my mum and my sister to pose as a pharmacist and a customer. Didn't tell them. And then it appeared in the pharmacy above the counter advertising with a massive banner headline saying uh, vaginal thrush. So that was fun. Feel free to edit that out. I won't. (laughs) But so that was illustration. And I always loved trying to get a likeness i was like faces faces yeah let's face it people are kind of endlessly interesting or they certainly are to me and it's that thing of trying to capture them trying to kind of describe an individual so not trying to draw something that looks vaguely like someone but trying to absolutely bring them to life in a two-dimensional form and so i always wanted i think to be a portrait painter but just assumed but you know who who the hell makes a living being a portrait painter it just doesn't happen but my parents never said get a job. They were always very tolerant of me pursuing it and helpful. So I sort of scratched a living for a while being this illustrator. And then every now and again, I'd get a commission for a portrait. And I'd earn a little bit more doing that. And over time, I've sort of gone from, you know, 50% of the time being a portrait painter and illustrator to being 100% a portrait painter. So years have passed, and, and I'm slowly kind of building up uh, to me anyway, a kind of really interesting collection of people that I've captured and, and kind of described. Brilliant. And does it keep you very busy? I mean, I've got no idea. I'm, I'm the least creative person on the planet. So what you do, I think is amazing. But do you have multiple commissions going on at the same time? Yeah. And here's a really, I think, very interesting thought that with my dyslexia and my inability to focus on written things and for any length of time, The one thing with that was that I was always able to focus on drawing or painting for almost limitless time because 
my theory is because every mark is slightly different to the previous mark, every color, every tone, every bit of lighting is always subtly shifting. And so I can paint for eight hours straight and be fine. And, and my concentration doesn't really waver. So I found that really interesting and thought, okay, yeah. that gives me possibilities to make a living, you know, because I'm not kind of fighting with myself in that way. And so, no, I, I'm really lucky in that people, for some reason, seem to commission me and have, I'm happy to say, yeah, sort of months, months, months worth of work ahead at the moment. And I try, so I'm looking around my studio at the moment and I've got one, two, three, four, five portraits that I've drawn up. So literally just the underdrawing. I've got a couple that I've kind of half painted. I've got two or three that are at a sort of advanced stage, but need just finishing. And so, yeah, I'm endlessly amazed that, that it's what I do. It's fantastic. And in March this year, when the craziness that is the coronavirus pandemic was really just rearing its head to the Western world, yeah. you put out a post on Instagram offering to create a free portrait to the first NHS key worker who contacted you. Mm. What made you decide to do that? So I, uh, what made me decide to do that? I was definitely struggling at that time. When we, so when I paint, I can have music on or a podcast or audio book. And, and I always do have something because I find a little bit of distraction from my brain is a good thing. So it's almost like a white noise. And I do tune in and out of whatever I'm listening to. But I had the, the rolling news on back in sort of February and March. And mm -hmm. I was slowly aware it was becoming unhealthy because if you listen, as I'm sure we all know, you know, if you, if you did get slightly not too into it, but you wanted to understand what exactly was happening here and what, what was the scale of this and how, how bleak and how dangerous are we talking and what are the risks. So I really kind of OD'd on information about it to the point that I really thought I've got elderly parents who live around the corner from me. I've got kids. And I was thinking this is, frankly, death is sort of out there stalking us. And what the hell is the point in pushing paint around a canvas? And that was the real breakdown of my process that led me to think, like, hang on a minute, really, what's the point of what I do? You know, like, wh why does anybody need a portrait? And I thought, well, portraits document people in a, in a sort of simplest sense. It is a permanent physical record of somebody's existence, right? So I always think when, sadly, when people pass away, and I've had experience of this with my wife's parents recently, sadly, where you are going through all of their stuff and all of your kind of accumulated bits and pieces over the years that, that a house has built up. And you decide what you keep and what you move on and what you let go. And Photos are enormously powerful and, and important. And obviously, we want to keep as many of those as our relatives as we have. But actually, because of the way it's all shifting onto digital now, and the fact that we all take endless photos of ourselves or other people, and almost every second seems to be documented by certainly the younger generation, you wonder if anyone's ever going to actually print any of it out and stick it on a wall. And I suspect they probably won't. And therefore, there is something physical about a portrait that I just believe stands the test of time and gets handed down. So aside from the fact that you can celebrate somebody with a portrait, you can, you know, people commission me because they've got, I don't know, 60th birthday coming up or something. And they think, you know, why don't we, why don't we capture this moment in our lives when things are either going great or you've just retiring or whatever the moment is, it's a really considered thought through way to let somebody else describe you to the world you know and say look here you are this is how I see you this is what this is what you've achieved this is what you're going through 
And so on all of that, I started to think, well, imagine walking through a gallery and as I do, you know, walk through the National Portrait Gallery and the portraits on the walls tend to have been, I keep saying, from the great and sometimes the good, because we know how the way we view history changes massively and is always hopefully we are holding people to a higher standard with each generation, you would hope. And so there are people who were powerful back in the day, but aren't necessarily the right people that should be on gallery walls. That's a conversation for another time. But I thought, without a doubt, from a historical point of view, what galleries should be showing to future generations is what 2020 looked like, right, in terms of the NHS workers, how it looked through their eyes on the front line of this bloody awful pandemic and the truly appalling work that they have to do on our behalf or have chosen to do on our behalf and are underpaid to do it. And uh, I know heroes is a word people bandy around. And I know I've had lots of people direct message me and say, you know, you shouldn't be calling them heroes because I'm a very broken human being and I'm finding it really difficult. And I don't like the fact that it's a label of that. And, and I'm trying to make the point that it is about their actions. I'm saying what you do is heroic. I know it's your job and I know, you know, it's amazing you're driven to go and do it. And we, we cannot thank you enough. But I just thought we can describe you. We can elevate you. I think there's an, there's an elevation of status with a portrait. I think when I think about portraits, it's often quite wealthy people who commission me. And I think there's a status thing with having your portrait done. And I think, well, NHS workers should be the best of the best and up there and in the, on the gallery walls. So, so that was my kind of start off. But hang on, I'm going to offer to paint somebody for free because it is expensive, because it takes a lot of time. You know, I can spend a month over a painting and then all the years of training and it's a sort of bespoke thing. So I thought, well, at the least I can do that. But then I, I suggested to all the other artists out there, of which there are fabulous portrait painters and I name checked a couple of top top portrait painters working today in this country and said you know if you can spare the time perhaps you could offer to paint an NHS hero too and we could really document this extraordinary passage of history we're trying to navigate our way through and I couldn't believe the response you know I had I had a little uh, notebook and I would write in one column NHS workers who were interested in the portrait and in the other column was the artist who was saying, I'll offer a free portrait. And I matched up 500 people in the first week. Uh, and oh over the next week, it was growing at a similar rate. And I thought, I, and of course, I couldn't work. So I couldn't work on my commission. So I was thinking, this is a full-time job. And it was literally from waking up in the morning, opening my phone up and seeing there were 300 messages from the day before going through all of them, answering back and forthing with them to make sure they were paired up, slowly growing it. So over the next few weeks, I thought I need to kind of get, not. I don't mean this in a, in a miserable way of getting it off my platform, but I needed to grow it quicker and get more people to have their portrait painted. So I said to these individuals, post this image I've got of a green canvas that says, I'm an artist offering a free portrait to the next NHS keyword to comment on my post. And when somebody does that, you then pair up, you arrange however you want to go about the portrait. So it grew uh, to the point that I had people messaging me from Ireland saying, could we set up something similar here? If we tweak the hashtag portraits for NHS heroes to portraits for HSE heroes, for instance, I had people in France, Italy, Spain, America, Malaysia, Canada. Um, it was extraordinary messaging me saying, look, can we do something similar for our healthcare? Could we reference your idea? And can we kind of tie it all in, tag it, you know, with hashtag portraits for health workers or portraits for NHS. So now, obviously, in this country, we've got this extraordinary thing of the National Health Service. So 
ours is very different. And I think I just, you know, it's clearly the best thing about living in this country as far as I'm concerned. So I just am so pleased that all these other artists in the art community and and I also feel sorry, so I'm absolutely rambling, so I apologise for this, but it has also built a little artistic community. I now speak to artists who I would never have met, you know, otherwise. And so we have conversations about and, and, and talking to NHS workers and saying, how's it looking out there? And they'll say, it's awful. You know, I've just come off a night shift and we lost three people. And you realise they have to somehow you can't begin to process that as a human being and then go back in again and do it the next night you know and so it was all of that frankly that just made me think let's get this going let's really push it and see how many people we can offer these free paintings to and and kind of celebrate them do you know i got really emotional when you were talking then i just think what you've done is just amazing so obviously you were going to create the portraits that was the idea did you ever have any thoughts that it would go anywhere else so you obviously you're seeing lots of action on social media Mm. and now they've gone into a book did you have that in your mind or was it always just initially i just want those paintings to be created to acknowledge this and have a point in time to to say to people what you're doing is is amazing i think it was it was predominantly that it was i had this idea that once you and it was a real sort of you won't believe it based on what's happened to me in the last sort of few months. I don't really like being centre of attention. I'm one of those people who's naturally quite shy. You wouldn't know it once I've had a couple of drinks and I'm in the pub or whatever. But <laughs> in the normal run of a day, I wouldn't put myself out there like that. But I think like anything, if you feel there's a genuine good feeling behind it and there's good intent behind it and you feel like you actually for whatever reason it triggers you and you go I want to make some bloody difference here I can't find a vaccine I didn't know what else to do and you look at what you do as a living and you think well how can I sort of twist that to make this work and actually I just thought it really had a sort of resonance and I found myself having conversations with the Tate and the National Portrait Gallery who annoyingly are closed for a refurbishment at the moment for two years so timing is really poor from that point of view because my initial hope was that if enough people took part, maybe we could have a physical exhibition once all the restrictions are through and we can get back to some sort of normality. I would love there to be, a re- but a really sort of significant, prestigious exhibition, not just a kind of, you know, no disrespect to smaller galleries, but, you know, I, I feel like the NHS workers deserve to have their time of being thanked after all this. If you heard there was an exhibition of, NHS workers at the National Gallery. I'd, I'd love to think people would want to go and see that. So that was my real hope, and still is my hope. And I still think we will get something. It's a question of people being willing to kind of commit to it because it's so difficult. Nobody knows how the year's going to go, and all these big galleries have got exhibitions booked up. So I totally understand, but I'm hopeful that we can get a lovely physical exhibition uh, at some point. Yeah, I think that would be spectacular. And I think. Mm-hmm. Having seen the paintings in, or the, the portraits, should I say, in the book, mm. there's such a variety of styles and interpretations and just imagery. I just think seeing that in a physical gallery would just be like mind blowing. I think it would be amazing. I think it would. And when did the idea come about of putting the portraits into a book? So the literary thread that I, I mentioned to you that runs through my life was, well, there were a couple of quick things. One was Mr. Bump, remember that strongly. The other one was Iris Murdoch, bizarrely, bought my house. So the house that I was telling you about where my dad or my mum would read to us at the top of the stairs, I remember mum and dad saying, this author is about to buy our house. And I, I didn't really know anything about her at the time. And, and 
then we met her and she seemed perfectly nice. And so that that's just, an, just kind of an aside in terms of literary, literary people, what I have known. <laughs> I met my wife and she works in publishing and at the time worked for OUP. She now works for Bloomsbury. And so when this whole thing started to get momentum and started to kind of build to a point where you thought, look, this is an amazing thing. And we got this amazing online exhibition with Google Arts and Culture who offered to build this beautiful space. And uh, I encourage you to go and have a look at that at some point because there were nearly 800 portraits there. And but she was saying and we were saying that there's a book in this. And I kept getting artists messaging me saying, look, you know, I kind of got some connections in 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 publishing. Uh, I really think there would be a book potentially in this or there might be an interest in it. And I thought, again, as a sort of record point of view, that would be really lovely to have something physical you could get your hands on and you could you could own. And so my wife messaged somebody. So she works on a sports list at Bloomsbury. So it's not her field, but she pinged an email off to somebody in the fine art division. And about a month later, I think once they saw it grow, I started to get some sort of media coverage of it. So I was on the news a couple of times and that was bizarre, but brilliant. It's funny how if you're kind of squirming with nerves and anxiety about being on a show, it's different when you care passionately about the thing, you know, and it's so funny when you're not just sort of talking about you. So about a month later, I think they'd seen a lot of press and thought, well, look, this is obviously got a bit of momentum and it's going somewhere. And this wonderful woman called Claire Martelli approached me from Bloomsbury and said, look, we really would like to do a book and not just a small book a really beautiful fine art I mean I describe it as a kind of coffee table book but it's just stunning and they had to produce it in record time because we were hoping to get it into bookshops for Christmas but with no drop off at all in quality and printed it all in this country and so that's a kind of amazing and then the best 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 bit is that all royalties from the book go to NHS charities together which was brilliant that they were happy for that to happen and so who wouldn't want to receive that as a Christmas present? There we go, get the plug in. But I think it's a fabulous thing. Everything about that's amazing. I'd written notes before I spoke to you today and I'd written a beautiful book, the level of quality, as you mentioned. You can often tell when a book has been pushed out quickly and that absolutely is not the case with this book. This looks like this book has been, you know, a year or two in the making. Absolutely. And like I said earlier on, the range in images is really lovely. We've actually had two people come into our shop already who are two of the artists. Oh, wow. And that's been so lovely because it's people and then actually pulling up the book and seeing what painting they've created is just really lovely. It makes it very real that these are individuals who have taken the time to recognise the hard work of the NHS. Absolutely. Well, that's why so many artists wanted to take part, you know, clearly, because we do, we all get it. We all get how amazing it is at the best of times. But my Lord, in, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, the idea of what these guys are having to go through and, and they're still having to go through. And so, I, I, no, I, I'm just so thankful to all of the artists who have taken part in it. And I'm so, I'm also really apologetic to all the artists who weren't featured in the book because I mean there are some sensational portraits and it is in no way a kind of I wanted to say to the people who weren't included it's in no way a judgment on the quality of the work you know it is just a numbers game of trying to get an overview and I think what Bloomsbury have done brilliantly is to give you a sense of the different styles so you've got pencil portraits you've got oil portraits but you've got somebody's made one with something called marquetry so lots of pieces of wood that make up a, an image of a portrait somebody did one a stitched portrait so that's amazing uh, a fused glass portrait so you see how 
everybody wanted to kind of do their bit and say thank you so much and hand these individuals a celebration of, of who they are, what they do, and a thank you. And so it's really, really moving. And there are forwards, by the way, in the book by, you know, Michael Rosen. So talking of famous authors. And so he has had a lifetime, actually, he says, of receiving care from the NHS and feels very deeply uh, the, the kind of gratitude for having that there. And he had contracted COVID and had it very, very badly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he can talk on that point of view. You've got the Dr. Jim Down, who obviously has, can speak from the point of view of the NHS and how things looked on the front line. And that's, again, incredibly moving. And then the artist Adabanji Aladi, who speaks from, a, from an artistic perspective on it. So th there are so many lovely angles and elements to this book that I just, yeah, I, I think it's a fabulous thing. I agree. So looking forward now, I mean, you've already talked about the fact that you're aiming to try and get this into a physical gallery at some point. Yeah. Have you got any other plans along these lines or is it focusing back on your portraits again and um, just riding the wave of what's going on at the moment with the book? Yeah. So I, I think, as you rightly say, my main push for next year will be to try and get a big gallery to agree and commit, even if it was in a year's time. I still think we're a way off this in terms of it being behind us. And I think actually perspective is no bad thing, you know, in every sense. So I think that if it was to be in the National Portrait Gallery in 2023, who cares? You know, it's still, I think there would be enormous relevance and, and that distance of time will give us the chance to kind of reflect potentially more deeply. And so that's my main push, aside from my poor, long-suffering, lovely clients who are sitting there going, I see you appearing on the news and doing all these other things, but actually I wouldn't mind my portrait being finished soon. So I'm desperate to get on with those and I am cracking on with them now, which is great. So I've got to spend uh, the first half of next year really getting on top of my poor client's commissions. So, yeah. It's all keeping you busy. Well, Tom, on behalf of everybody, I think what you've done is an amazing thing. And I just want to say thank you very much for doing it. It's been so wonderful talking to you today for the benefit of the listeners this podcast episode was then quite quickly we we managed to turn around really quickly because I was really keen to get it to be our season finale because I just think it's so important to recognize what all of these amazing workers have done this year and the time that you and the fellow artists have taken out to recognize that is fabulous so thank you so much for speaking to me today and thank you very much for a wonderful book thank you so much all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Most Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us. Music